Welcome to My Cockpit Builder of the Month podcast interview. Each month, we bring you interviews and discussions regarding home cockpit builders. And don't forget, this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for all of you. That's why My Cockpit is the largest home cockpit builders community in the world. You can access us at www.mycockpit.org. In this monthly edition of My Cockpit Podcast, we bring you interviews and discussions, all relevant topics to the home cockpit builders. This month, we'll bring you another excellent interview conducted by Vibow. Now let's get up close to learn more about this Builder of the Month's project. This month, we've broken up the interview in three sessions. So here is session one. Hello everyone, welcome to this edition of MyCockpit.org's podcast. I'm Vaibhav, and today I have with me a very special guest. He's a renowned home cockpit builder. His project has of course been an inspiration to a number of home cockpit builders around the world, including me. He has of course earned a lot of appreciation from various people across the globe for his achievements with his home cockpit, and more recently also awarded the MyCockpit.org's Builder of the Month. Yes, you're right, I'm talking about Madford. Hello, Matt. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you very much for agreeing to participate in this in between your busy schedule. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Matt, because everyone knows what you have achieved with your cockpit, and of course, you have shared a lot of information in the written interview, which of course can be accessed at www.mycockpit.org. More information is easily available on about your cockpit pictures and what you have done with your cockpit and how far you have succeeded at www. 737sim.com. Matt, my first question, just to kickstart the podcast, is you've, of course, started building your uh, cockpit way back in 1996. Can you share with us how you went about planning your simulator, why it was on the drawing board? I'm sure this would be of interest, particularly to those of them who are just going to start their hobby. Uh, sure. Yeah, it had sort of been in my mind for quite some time. Uh, when I was, oh, I think, about 12 years old, I sort of... Uh, Again, thinking about building some kind of simulator, and of course, this was back, uh, sort of dating myself, but this was in the in the early 1980s. Uh, so it had always sort of been in the back of my mind. I always had a love of aviation and a love of electronics, so they sort of melded together. So if you fast forward to uh, early 1996, I was living in Dallas at the time and actually taking flight lessons. And uh, I was uh, doing my first cross-country and overflew Ardmore Airport, Oklahoma, and noticed that there were several, oh, actually not even several, probably about 30 or so commercial aircraft in various states of uh, teardown. And I noticed that there were several 737s. And kind of around that time, I came across a, a magazine that's no longer around, but it was a, a real inspiration called Microwings published by a guy named Robert McKay, who was uh, based in Dallas. And uh, prior to doing this flight, he had published, or, or prior, excuse me, prior to me going on this flight, he had published several articles about home cockpit building. And, of course, this was really at its infancy. There were really only maybe three or four people in the entire world that had, that had really sort of uh, gone after this at the time. So, anyway, reading that magazine kind of put the bug in my head. So uh, a few months later, I'm doing this cross-country flight. I see all of these airplanes down there, and I think to myself, wow, it would be great to just build a 
small little uh, cockpit. Uh, and at the time, really, all, all I was thinking about was just having a throttle quadrant while carrying the throttle quadrant up to this piece of electronic hardware called an Epic card. And, and essentially just having a throttle quadrant there so I could control my flaps, spoilers, uh, and uh, reverse, uh, reverse thrust. So uh, if you jump forward about a week, my brother and I uh, drive up there to Oklahoma, which is about an hour and a half drive away, and we talked to the gentleman, and, and he said, hey, I've got this uh, nose cutoff uh, that was going to be sold to American Airlines, but American was no longer interested in it. So he offered it to me for $1,000, and the cockpit was, uh, as I mentioned, cut off at, at kind of right forward of where the circuit breaker panels would be, and the thing was really completely empty. The only thing it had in it were the, uh, was the throttle quadrant and the control columns and rudder pedals, and that was it. The control wheels were gone, all of the panels were gone. So at the time, my intention was was to take this thing home and literally rip the throttle quadrant out and then send the rest of it off to scrap. So we brought this thing back to my parents' house. Uh, it was quite a drive coming back over this thing in a, on a trailer. And I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to remove the throttle quadrant. And the thing was so old, it was built in 1967, that the, the screws and all that sort of thing were just practically welded in there from years of lead paint and whatnot. So uh, I quickly came to the realization that I probably wasn't going to be able to remove this thing. And then that's when I sort of came to the realization, you know what, I've got this thing. No one else has done this before. Why not take the whole cockpit and convert it into a flight simulator? So that was really the, the genesis of, of where, the, where the project uh, started. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, it, it must have been quite some change in mind from just a throttle quadrant and, and then finally that you got a shell so, uh, and, and then to what you have achieved today. So you, you kind of started this by buying the uh, scrap shell and about $1,000 being your initial investment. Uh, that's fabulous. So so you actually went on and, and the pictures that I see on your website are uh, is the same shell that you actually picked up in 1996? That's correct. Yes, the thing was really in awful shape, and they really didn't do a, 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 a clean job of cutting the thing. So, uh, so yeah, so the, the, we picked the thing up, and it uh, was in my parents' uh, in front of my parents' house. And uh, the following day, we put it in my parents' back driveway. And around that time, I was uh, probably about a month month or so later. I actually moved to Los Angeles to, to get into the television business. So the cockpit actually sat in my parents' driveway for, oh, probably about a year and a half or so before I, uh, actually probably about two years before I was able to move, move the thing up to Los Angeles. So the, the, in, in that time, I did manage to remove the throttle quadrant and transported it back up to Los Angeles. I removed the overhead panel, transported that up to Los Angeles, and began in my home office, which was actually in my apartment, to sort of begin the the inner workings of the throttle quadrant, implementing slide pots, that sort of thing. And probably about a year into it, the setup that I had at the time really consisted of sort of my original vision, which was just uh, the throttle quadrant sitting next to my desk. I had uh, I had the the, the forward thrust levers wired. I had the speed brakes wired. I had the flaps 
uh, wired and the reverse thrust wired. And that was literally it, all of this being interfaced with the Epic system. And about that, uh, about that time, uh, my uh, friend James Price and I began going to aviation auctions, and we would uh, come across uh, um, what do you call it, the, the overhead uh, modules that were used in the 737. So uh, both he and I sort of simultaneously began acquiring these, these overhead modules, and since I had my overhead uh, frame with me in California, I would slowly add these modules into the system, and, of course, that whole process entailed ripping all of the electronics out, putting in new connectors, and then interfacing it with, with the EPIC. So, so really, probably about by 1999, at that at that point, really all I had was the throttle quadrant and the overhead panel, which had, for the most part, all of the overhead modules. And all of this uh, was just kind of sitting at my desk. I had the throttle quadrant on my uh, left hand side and the overhead panel uh, sitting on my desk kind of leaned up against the wall, but at that point, uh, pretty much all of the lights and switches were working, and the software development began. So that's kind of where things were right up to that point. That's cool. Matt, uh, today, uh, I believe the cockpit building, the home cockpit building industry has moved uh, and, and improved immensely. What was the kind of resources that you had to kind of learn what you have to do and how you had to approach things, and so what was your reference point? Uh, was it just discussion, or you had some resources at that point of time? How did you kind of develop the skill sets that are required? Everything was was pretty much self-taught uh, back back at this at this point. And again, we're you know we're talking 1998, 1996. You didn't have uh, the resources that you have today, such as mycockpit.org, and you certainly did not have the sort of third-party manufacturers that provide USB. Actually, this was really before USB was even around. So really, the only the only, uh, the only only thing that was out there as far as an input-output device was the Epic card uh, developed by R&R Electronics out of Maryland. And uh, because this was the only guy around, he was sort of the person that would hook all of us up that were into this sort of thing. So he introduced me to James Price who lives in Livermore, California. And at the time, he had built a Boeing 737 out of wood uh, in his in his uh, spare bedroom. And anyway, he and I spoke. He's actually an air traffic controller uh, for Oakland Center. Anyway, uh, so he, he was really much further along and, and had, uh, had this fully functional cockpit, had already learned a lot of the skills necessary to get into it. So our friendship quickly developed, and especially, I think, once he realized that, that I was very serious about the hobby, he and I became very close friends. So a lot of the skills that I learned or or things that I wasn't quite sure how to do, James was the one that, that taught me. So he and I really were the, were the only ones sort of kind of working on this sort of thing at the time, but really everything kind of came from him. That's amazing. I mean, looking looking back, looks like uh, 
for the new cockpit builders, uh, there's a lot more resources available. And of course, as you mentioned, um, you know, there are, there are so many vendors that are there and, and, and some of them particularly producing some high quality stuff. So, well, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, what you've kind of achieved uh, way back in 1996 to 1999 or maybe even early 2000 till, you know, I, I presume there's not much resources available. Uh, Matt, um, you of course have gone through the planning phase um, in during your cockpit building. What kind of advice would you want to give to new cockpit builders and, you know, what is that that they should think about when they are actually planning out their home cockpit? Um, that's a bit of a different, or difficult question. Uh, probably uh, the, the two things that people really, for the most part, do not understand, uh, or, or and I know I certainly didn't at the time, is the amount of time, number one, that it takes, and second, the the amount of money that going uh, talking about time. You know, first of all, it's really, if you think about it, a, a pretty big undertaking. To, to do this sort of thing. And I know at the time, I literally had no idea. I thought, oh, this will probably take about a year, maybe two years. And here I am, you know, 15 years later or whatever, and still working on it. So it, it, it definitely is a very big uh, time-consuming project. So really my first bit of advice would be make sure that you have the time and um, – and secondly, uh, understand that it is a uh, it is a bit of a costly undertaking. Now, when I say that, keep in mind that that for myself, it was very important to use the real cockpit, uh, the real airplane parts, and to achieve an extremely high level of fidelity. Uh, that's not something that that is, is certainly required by the hobby. People people have uh, their simulators. Constructed with sort of various two various levels of, of realism, so you certainly do not have to go to the extent that I do or that I did. Uh, and if you if you kind of back off on the goals and and maybe make some some cuts here and there, then you certainly will save yourself money. Uh, but you know things like such as the computers and 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 all of the hardware, all of that adds up pretty quick. So, uh, so you, you, you really don't, or you really want to make sure that you're, you're aware at the front end that it's going to take a, a good amount of time and that it potentially will take a good amount of money and to not be sort of, uh, naive about that sort of thing. I, I get, I get questions or emails from people off of the website that, that ask that exact same thing, like where can I get a cockpit? Uh, how much uh, did this cockpit cost uh, or this project cost, and a lot of times people are, are very, very surprised. It's, it's definitely a very, uh, very satisfying hobby. I love, love doing it, and certainly today it's much easier and also much faster to get up and running than it was back when, when we started. Uh, you, so you have vendors like uh, Flight Deck Solutions, Peter Koss's stuff, which is fantastic, a lot of uh, a lot of cockpit panels that are plug and play via USB, so you're you're not having to write hardware from scratch. So today it is a little bit more of an efficient process to to make that happen. But nonetheless, it's still it's still an expensive and time consuming endeavor. So make sure that uh, you have that time and that uh, that you have uh, the money to spend. And then also too, if uh, if you're married, make sure that you have a, an understanding spouse that will uh, be supportive of the hobby. I couldn't agree with you more. Time, money, and uh, make sure you have your family support. Yeah. Absolutely. 
<laughs> I, I just wanted to ask you this question earlier, but uh, sure. I thought I should not, and I pulled back, but I, now I can't stop it. You, you started off saying that you just wanted to buy a throttle quadrant, but you landed up buying this huge shell, and you you know got that on a trailer to your parents' house. What was your reaction like? Well, my parents had no idea that this was coming, and my brother was helping me out at this time, and the uh, this thing went to the back of my parents' house, as I mentioned before, and when my dad came home from work, I, uh, I if I remember correctly, I had gone home at the time, so it was just my brother. My brother sort of described the look on my, my dad's face as just being completely awestruck that this thing was in the in his in his back driveway and he was of course a little bit pissed off and of course he wanted to know how long this thing was going to going to stay in there. So it was it was definitely definitely a bit of a surprise. That is that's for sure. But uh, he, he uh, my dad worked for Delta Airlines. Most of his friends are pilots and I I think my dad sort of got a kick out of being able to tell his friends, his pilot friends at the Delta, that his son brought home a Boeing 737 that was sitting in his back driveway. So I think he got a kick out of it after sort of initially not being too pleased that this thing was sitting in his sitting in his backyard. Okay, that's interesting. Why I asked you that question was because I I personally went through a similar experience because I I had actually uh, picked up MIT and stuff from Flying Gravity and the shells from Peter Koss and mm-hmm. um, and and I kind of paid it down as much as I could. But uh, when when I actually put these things together, it occupied the entire room, which they were not anticipating or expecting. And and there was of course a lot of uh, oohs and ahs, and you know they're not so sure if I'm spending the money the right way and. Uh, but over a period of time, once they saw this thing developing, I could see the price in them trying to send their friends and relatives there, sending down, see, this is what he's done, and uh, talking about it. So it, it was pretty interesting to hear, uh, you know, you kind of went through a very similar experience. So, and that's why I couldn't have to ask you that. that actually brings me to the next question. I presume uh, since you, you kind of made up your cockpit in days where not much uh, vendors were available uh, that was applying to the home cockpit uh, community. So how much of your cockpit is made of real uh, Boeing 737 parts? That's a very good question. Uh, well, the, the throttle quadrant, the all of the flight controls are real. Um, the overhead panel frames are real. The rest of it, the seats are real. Um, the Some of the liners are real, uh, the, the Kydex liners. But... Uh, and the switches and indicator lights are real. Uh, if, uh, probably about two years ago, I'd say probably 85% or probably 75% of the cockpit was real. And the reason that I say that is most of the overhead panel modules were out of the 737-200, and those were straight out of the real aircraft. And, oh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, Peter Koss, came out with his incredible IBL, uh, which I believe stands for Integrated Backlighting Light Plates for the 737NG. And these, these, uh, these light plates were identical in size and almost identical in construction to the real light plates used on the 737NG. So uh, what I did essentially is I, 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 because the goal of the aircraft was to become a 737-700 or 737-next generation, I knew that at some point I needed to convert most of my overhead modules to look like the 737-NG series as opposed to the classic round dial series. 
So what I did is I purchased the light plate sets from Peter, and along with those came the back plates. So then what I did is I removed all of the indicator lights and switches out of my old 737-200 modules and then installed them into the back plates and built up the, the new modules, which, uh, which are what are in the cockpit today, that are 737-NG series. So kind of, a, kind of a difficult question to answer because you do have several or, or quite a few items that came off of the original aircraft, but a lot of the new stuff, that are 737NG related are simulated parts because, of course, none of the 737NG stuff is being uh, t- uh, ter- uh, is being torn down at the present time. And of course, the real aircraft parts means uh, you need to do a lot of electronic stuff yourself. And uh, so, so, would it be right to um, assume and advise uh, the new cockpit builders that if you are purchasing a real aircraft part, be sure that it's going to be expensive. And number two, it needs a lot of time and effort to actually convert the electronics. Uh, yes and no. Uh, the system that I'm currently using and have used from the beginning is the Epic system, as I mentioned before. And really, all you're doing with that is you're interfacing indicator lights and switches with some input-output cards that connect to the EPIC. So really, the, the, your, the understanding required, the understanding of electronics required to do this is, is not particularly heavy. You do need to understand sort of basic electricity and basic wiring of DC, DC electrical systems, that sort of thing. But I think, especially unlike Mike.org, the resources are out there, and there are enough people out there that have done this that if you uh, have never done it before, you can certainly find someone out there that can help you and someone that can, that can lead you through it. Again, when I started this, I really knew very, very little. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. That concludes Session 1 of this Builder of the Month interview.